Open up your Bibles to Jude. Yeah, just a few notes left. If you're if you're following along in those outlines, just a few lo- notes left of our outline on being called before we continue on. And I just want to read the first two verses again, uh, as that'll be our text for both this outline and the next one. Jude, verses 1 and 2. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. And we are looking, as I said, at, at called. And I just had a few... Uh, a few more evidences, a few more scriptures for us to consider on this subject before we move forward. Um, we left off talking about the intentional watering of the Lord uh, because of the destiny for the elect of God to be fertile ground, to be found fruitful. Uh, and, and we quoted Isaiah 55 verse 13, <clears throat> which said, Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is literally the undoing of the curse that we read about in Genesis 3, where it spoke of the dust and it spoke of the thorns that would be working against Adam. This is the undoing of that curse. And that undoing is Christ Jesus. He is the one who calls. So just a few scriptures here for us to content, uh, consider. Uh, very familiar when Romans 8, verses 28 through 30, to begin with. We see called referenced here as well. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Sadly is where most people stop reading. And it continues though and says to them who are the called. The called. This is a specific group. This isn't just a a, a moment in time in which they were called. It is the called. This is a select group of individuals receiving the calling. Who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, from whom, uh, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Praise God. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We see another example. 2 Timothy chapter 1 Verses 8 through 12 says, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me. And this is Paul writing. And Paul describes himself a prisoner, his prisoner, Christ's prisoner. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us unto and or with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose according to his own grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Then Paul says, Whereunto I am appointed a preacher, appointed an apostle, appointed to be a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed." For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. i ask a question before I I proceed with the outline here. If God's called are described as prisoners, could God have called all 
Because if we're all prisoners, then is anybody a prisoner? If all of us are prisoners, then there wouldn't be so-called freedom from being a prisoner. There'd be no difference, and we would all be the same. All called, all prisoned, all sanctified, all preserved. But that's most definitely not the case. That's, what, that's not what Scripture presents to us, and that's certainly not what Paul's writing of. Paul says that he was appointed to that which he became. He was called to be before the foundation of the world that which he became. Some would argue, where's free will? It ain't in the Bible. Some would say, well, Paul chose of himself. That's foolishness. Paul was on his way to Damascus to not choose Christ, to not be dropped to the dirt and blinded and saved and have a, a, a revelatory moment in which the Lord revealed himself to him. It's hard to kick against the pricks. You are my persecutor, Jesus says unto him. Paul was appointed before the foundation of the world to be exactly what Christ made for him to be. This appointment was made manifest in the appearing of Jesus Christ and his steps were guided by the precious workings of the Holy Spirit. What the scripture, what Paul refers to here with Timothy is that it was revealed unto him in time. It was accomplished in time. But it was established before the foundation of the world. The work was completed on the cross, but it was never in jeopardy. I know it sounds like a riddle. It was never in jeopardy. Christ Jesus was never going to fail. He had to do what he came to do, but he was never going to deviate from it. How could, from the, found, uh, from the foundation of the world, how could there be security for the elect of God from the foundation of the world all the way to the revealing of their salvation, and then we question whether it's kept for all eternity. Is it a greater strength, a greater power that keeps our salvation from the moment it's been revealed on? Uh, the only way we could possibly even question if our salvation is kept is to establish that we have some responsibility in the keeping of it, and we do not. Our salvation from its revealing unto us is as secure for all eternity as it was from before the foundation of the world. Amen. He was not merely appointed and never notified. Christ himself called him into the path of light. So I think we read called and we think, well, yeah, of course, he had to do that. No, he didn't. This is all part of a, a sovereign masterpiece all part of his intimate love for his chosen ones. Consider Acts 9, verses 3 through 6. It says, As he journeyed, he came, and this is Paul, or Saul of Tarsus more specifically, As Saul journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Already we have evidence that Jesus wasn't just keeping an appointment to save whoever was walking on the road that day. He was specifically coming to reveal himself to Saul. Saul, the persecutor of Christ. Now, Jesus could have gone door to door and asked every Jew, asked every Christian, do you know Saul of Tarsus? And every Christian would have said, most definitely we know Saul of Tarsus. We fear his name, but we trust in you. We know him because he's persecuted our own. He's chastised the church. He's coming for us. We know who he is. Jesus didn't have to do that. He knew right where Saul was. And he came right to Saul, called him by name, called him by reputation. 
Why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Later, Jesus says to another that uh, Saul doesn't know all that he will suffer for, his, for Jesus' own namesake. Saul wasn't made, Paul wasn't made to suffer for the things he had done. Any affliction that Paul experienced was for the things Christ had done. It was for the work of God the Father. Paul says, I'm chief of sinners. But he acknowledges that he's not paying for his sin. The affliction that he experiences, his writing from Roman prisons, from house arrest, was not because of sin that he had committed, but it was because of the gospel that he was sharing. This is the great uh, affliction that we share with that afflicted gate, do we not? We too should suffer so. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life, and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. By what? By these exceeding great and precious promises that were given unto us, that we would be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We have been called to his glory, called to his virtue, called away from the world. It's described here in such a way that there'd be no question you can't have both. And if you're truly born again, you would not desire both. You would have such an understanding of the love of Christ, such an understanding of the work that you've been called unto, that you give up some things of this world. Lot didn't. His soul was vexed every day. He chose to sit in the gates of the city. He chose to take in the poison of the world as it entered into the community, as it exited from the community. He was exposed to it. He knew the hearts of his neighbors and said nothing. He looked the other way. And some will say, but he's described as righteous. He was pulled out of that judgment. He was removed before fire consumed Sodom and Gomorrah. But his wife couldn't help but look back. His daughters couldn't shake the nature that they had been exposed to, the, the traditions of man that they had absorbed. What of Lot? We, we heard this morning of the patience of Job. But what of Lot? Do we ever hear the scripture describe the patience of Lot, the endurance of Lot? No, the only thing we can say about Lot is that there was preservation for Lot from Christ Jesus. Lot is our greatest example that we're not saved by works. He didn't do any. Lot is our greatest example that if we are saved and preserved, it's not because we earned it. And it's not because we continue to uphold it. It's because God deemed it so. 
Don't think lots more wicked than you are. Every man's imaginations only evil continually. This is still the saddest state of affairs today. We've been called to his glory and his virtue away from the world to be partakers of these things. We must be chastened. We must be purified. We must come away from those things of this world that we have found satisfaction in for the higher calling that has been given us. How does Peter describe it? This thing that's been given us? Exceeding great and precious promises. That means more than great. Exceeding great. This is a continual exceeding. It just continues to elevate in its value. And precious promises. These are promises you're not going to find from everywhere else. These are promises that can only come from one source, can only, more importantly, be kept by this one who's making the promise here. By these promises of God, we have escaped the corruption of lust that is in the world by Christ and Him alone. Consider Isaiah 42, verses 5 through 8, and I'll just go ahead and read it so we can jump into the next outline here. But Isaiah 42, verses 5 through 8, Thus saith God, the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and then that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. I love the book of Isaiah. I don't know that Isaiah leaves too many questions unanswered, honestly. He reveals in, in the beginning of his book his utter wickedness and how he had to be undone, destroyed. His arms had to, to be wiped away. His strength had to be in God. And maybe you're here and you're suffering. You've lost something or you've never had something and you know you need it. It's quite possible you're going to have to be knocked down. You're going to have to be forced out of some things, called out of some things. You might have to give up some things. It might be a job, might be friends, might be outer influences, might be influences from within the home. Might be traditions of man might be things that I even struggle with that I haven't been revealed unto me just yet. And I struggle with everything I've already mentioned. But if God has called you away from it or to it, you better obey. You better obey. This is the one that created the heavens, that giveth breath, that giveth spirit. And his, his statement here is most earnest. And should draw an emotion from us as a little child. As he says, I will hold thine hand. I will keep thee. <coughs> and then he gives a covenant for the people. The undeserving people. How can you call them undeserving, preacher? They're described as prisoners. Captives. Slaves. Praise Him for His sacrifice, for His faithfulness. Praise Him for keeping His promise in spite of ourselves. Praise Him for His comforts, for His calling us unto Himself. We didn't deserve it. We shouldn't be welcome in His presence. 
And without the righteousness of Christ Jesus, we wouldn't be. As we look back to our, our first two verses there, I want to go ahead and read verse 3 and 4 as well. Uh, we'll, start, uh, we'll start in verse 2. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. And that's what we're really going to look at in this next outline is the mercy unto you, mercy, peace, love, and then that multiplication of those things. And he goes on, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Before we go too far into this, this outline is mainly on mercy, peace, love, and, and that multiplication, the God's mass, which is just amazing. But I want to point out that Jude is not writing an ancient letter to dead people. He's writing a warning to Christians for all time. And he is writing of ungodly men who strive to turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness. He gives examples of it happening in his day, and he proves that it's an ongoing concern by proving that it always has been a concern from days before. He speaks of Enoch's days, and quite literally, Jude covers a great span of the Old Testament and the verses that follow. He's pointing not to the things that used to be concerns, but he's pointing to thousands of years of this similar concern that will still plague God's people going forward. He illustrates for us that it's been going on since the beginning, since Satan's fall and his influence on man, and it will continue until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to put it to rest once and for all when even death dies. I don't want us to continue in the study of Jude and think this is some old letter to some extinct concerns. These concerns might be even more important today than they've ever been. The church is losing ground, beloved. And I don't speak of the church of Rome. The Lord's church isn't giving over to the gates of hell. Don't, hear, don't mishear me here. But men don't care about godly things any longer. And maybe it's been a long time since we did. Men do not have a concern for God in their lives. Men do not repent. Men do not confess their faults one to another. If anything, men talk about how much more perfect they are than the other. The introduction of social media has made it way easier for us to talk about how great we are. But the Bible says we are to confess our faults one to another. If we have hope of seeing this mercy, peace, and love that we're about to hear of, we're going to have to learn some humility. We're going to have to understand that Jude is talking to us. That Jude is talking about concerns in Mantachi, Mississippi, in 2023, just as much as he is the church there during the period in which he was writing. As it is God who begins the work of grace in the souls of men, as we've seen in these first few outlines, so it is he who carries it on. So it is he who perfects it. Let us not trust in ourselves, nor in our stock of grace already received, but in him and him alone. The Lord doesn't give us grace that we fill the storehouses so that we can draw on it when we need it. Quite literally, sufficient enough is the day. 
This is the scripture. Quite literally, he's given you grace for today. Okay, not to grow fat on at the end of the day when you didn't use it, but to fully exercise it. To fully exercise it. How many in here would say God has not been good to them? How many in here, if they were completely honest, would say God's been better to me than I deserve? Use it up. There's a hand. I see the hand. Use it up. Use it up because God gave you that grace for a purpose. How do we use it up, preacher? Go tell somebody how good God's been to you. Spend this whole week talking about how good God's been to you. I can think of situations that I, I could tell those stories and it might seem like a most miserable story to somebody else, but for me, God was there. I mean, think if you ran to those three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they start telling you the story of that furnace, your jaw would probably hit the floor and say, that's horrible. You would probably even say, why would God, if he loves you, why would he let you go in that furnace? After you got past the speculation point, because they didn't smell like smoke, so you'd probably say, what? Well, you didn't go in any furnace. There's no proof of that. But if you got to the point where you believe they went in a furnace, your first concern would probably be, I don't know that God loves you. You might even become Job's friends for a minute and say, there's probably some great sin in your life that led you to go into that furnace. But we don't see that, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, a year or two ago, when Isaac was teaching through uh, those portions of Daniel, they stood on godly principles and said they would not forsake God. That's how they got the furnace. But if they're telling us the story, they'll say, we went into this fiery furnace. They turned it up before we got in there, hotter than it had ever been. So hot it consumed the guards beside us, consumed the bands from off our wrists as soon as we got in it. How would you receive that? Yeah, that sounds miserable, bro. I wouldn't want to go through that. Your God allowed that? And said, so not only did he allow it, he was there. He caused for those events to happen so that the king could see him. So the king could see faith. So the king could see that even if our flesh was thrown into all-consuming fire, we would remain faithful to he that is greater. So yeah, he, he led us in there. Matter of fact, he, he, he made the way, he paved it for us. They bound our hands. They took us up to the mouth of this furnace. We didn't even have to figure out the way. He led us all the way there. And when we plummeted inside, we were comforted by his, his, uh, his presence. We felt no heat. We felt no misery. We were freed, freed at last, because the bands were removed. And though the, the furnace roared loud, we could hear the king say, There's a fourth! There's a fourth inside the fire! Yeah, I think he gave them enough grace to tell that story because Daniel told it. So all the misery that we know, all the horrible experiences we're going through right now, as we've talked in our Wednesday night studies, it's not always a judgment of God because of your sin. You have sin in your life, and you're called to judge that sin in your life by repenting of it. But not every action of God is a judgment against sin. He has, thankfully for all of us, a part of his attributes that we discussed last fall called patience, called incredible, sovereign, long-suffering, in which he will allow you to defy him for a season. And it may be a very long season in which you turn your back on the Lord. But when it's time to come home, 
that furnace may be turned up hotter than it's ever been. And that thing, person, whatever it might be, that you've chosen to place on his seat, it most definitely will be consumed by the fire. And you will know, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew, as even Saul knew, that it was the hand of God. My prayer is that he reveals these things to us in, in, and soon and quickly, that we might do the proper thing and repent of it. That he might reveal these dangers that lie in the path that we've probably brought into the path with us and allow for us the time to be done with them, to sacrifice them on the altar so that his place is clean, his throne is empty, but for himself. The word contend, and we have to hit that first part so hard because what Jude tells us to do here is earnestly contend for the faith. You cannot earnestly contend for the faith with sin in your life. You can't earnestly contend for something that you aren't wholeheartedly, uh, you aren't wholeheartedly invested in. Uh, I would not be one to earnestly contend for driving a Ford. I don't own one. I have nothing against them, but I'm not going to convince anybody else they should buy one. I don't have anything invested in that. So when you go to earnestly contend for the faith, and this is more than witnessing, but we'll just start with witnessing. When you go to present the faith, when you go to witness to someone, and you're doing it maybe at Sunday at 1130, and you're not doing it here, you can't say that you're earnestly doing it. You're not where you should be. How can we earnestly contend for something we half-heartedly invest in? But when you've repented, when you have cleansed yourself, emptied yourself, when you have yoked up with him, and the opportunity comes along, or the desperate need comes along to earnestly contend, which means to struggle for the faith before others, you will have a testimony that supports it. Where's the proof, preacher? We just wrapped up the last outline talking about Saul of Tarsus. And I mentioned how the Jews and the Christians would have perceived Saul of Tarsus if he came knocking on the door. Uh, they'd probably pretend they weren't home. The lights would go out, and they would not make a sound because they would not want to deal with Saul of Tarsus. And yet, in Paul's own words and what we've read this morning, he was made to be a teacher and an apostle to the Gentiles. He was made and fit for the purposes God had him for. But he ran amok, chief of sinners. He persecuted the church, men and women. How could he be used in such a way? But God. That's how. But God. Paul, beloved, was able to earnestly contend for the faith. Not because he continued to persecute the church on the side. He repented and pursued after God. You will not earnestly contend for God in any possible way until you are fully invested in God. Every time you try, which is a good thing, it's a good thing for you to try to earnestly contend for the faith, but every time you try, he will reveal unto you, if you'd like to do that, and I'd very much encourage you to do it, you must repent of this. Then you must repent of this. Then you must come away from this. And then you must walk away from that. And then you can't have anything to do with these over here anymore. And then you must live like this, like my son, like scriptures has illustrated. And to do that, you have to read the scriptures. 
You have to get to know who the Lord Jesus was and what his life actually was on this earth. This word contend, this earnestly contend for the faith, this word means to struggle for. This doesn't mean that earnestly contending for the faith is just sending a few emails and attending all of the safe meetings in which everyone is saved and everyone agrees with one another. There are no such things as meetings in which everybody agrees with one another, just so you know. I've been to enough of them to know that. Jude is writing that we are to struggle with and overcome the old man nature within ourselves that we can continue to obtain, continue to grow in the faith once delivered unto us. He gives us a charge here that I don't know we're equipped to receive at times, but it is a most desperate charge because the ungodly are turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness even today. What is the antithesis of that? That God's people would earnestly contend for the faith. We get this in two verses. Uh, nay, three if we want to count verse two. And in a book in which there's only one chapter, and the word ungodly appears about 20 times. The antithesis for what Satan is accomplishing, I'm not going to say trying to, he is very much accomplishing it here in our own nation, in our own state, in our own communities. Oh, not Mantachi. Really? What happened in December? That main street out there was pretty busy on Sundays, was it not? Satan's got a victory in Mantachi, Mississippi. Every business here with an opportunity to open up for one more day did. Not every business, thankfully. But just about every storefront business was open on Sundays to the point where I, I think we called Lindsay and I said, what is going on? Are we earnestly contending for the faith? Do we know the dangers of these things? For one more day of business, what it truly will cost us? Look up what the blue law was and what we've lost since it went away. He continues on in verse 4 to mention the ungodly which would turn the grace of God. And the grace of God is described in other places as a free gift. So the ungodly are taking this free gift and turning it into lasciviousness or filthiness or quite literally translated unbridled lust. Take a look at Hollywood. Unfortunately, here in America, Hollywood is a barometer for the American people. What they tell us to be okay with, we eventually become okay with. Don't believe me? Look around at the rampant homosexuality we're told is happening in America, and then count how many you know. Hollywood tells us it's everywhere. Hollywood tells us of a lot of things, and we, like sheep, follow right along ungodly men are turning the free gift of God's grace into unbridled lust and it's happening in our churches as well if you give any uh, attention to the Osteen movement and even some of MacArthur's stuff the very principle of this thing which the Lord established during his ministry is being turned over into lasciviousness This again is to be earnestly contended with that grace not be distorted or confused as to be of a filthy or unholy source. 
or namely of man's own achievement. As soon as we lose sight of the fact that the grace of God was a free gift, we immediately claim it. Like finding $20 cash on the road, it's ours. It's ours. I needed it. I must have it. It looks good to eat, Eve says. Surely thou shalt not surely die, Satan says. Uh, there are five points in this outline. We're not going to really get started on any of it. Uh, four points, rather. Uh, but I do want to give you the, those, those points. The first three are the three blessings wished upon all Christians by Jude, God's mercy, God's peace, and God's love, which is referenced in, as well by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. And if we look at it again through the lens of Jude, now abideth the, uh, and now abideth faith, which is obtained by mercy. Hope, without it, would, uh, we would never have peace. And charity, which we also know to be love. And then that fourth point, when we get to it probably next Sunday, uh, is going to be the unto you part, the multiplication of these three blessings. And it's been described as a threefold cord. It's been described as uh, three in one. Uh, and we'll take a, a more of an in-depth look at that, Lord willing, uh, next Sunday.